Hello, listeners. This is just a final reminder that on Thursday, June 10th and Thursday, June 17th, I will be leading a seminar discussion of two classic texts on postmodernism by Frederick Jameson and Jean-Francois Lyotard. And many of the themes that I discuss in this episode with Sterling Bartlett will also be addressed in the seminar. So if you're interested in these topics, um, please go to the show notes and you'll find a link for further information about the seminar and how to sign up. So hope to meet some of you there and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Sterling Bartlett is an illustrator recently particularly into making comics and specifically the author of the recent How Did We Get Here, which uh, is what we'll be talking about and which I definitely recommend to my listeners. There's a lot of uh, convergence with themes we've already covered on this show. So um, that's part of why Sterling and I connected. And he's also sort of, I I consider you part of the outsider theory family already because you have blurbs from two of my previous guests, (laughs) Beyond Woke and Problematic and Adam Lehrer. So, you know, you're sort of, you're part of the network. (laughs) grandfathered in yeah so anyway thanks for uh thanks for coming on thanks for having me and um you know again our our initial subject anyway will be your recent uh, how did we get here which is uh both um brief and very all-encompassing in terms of the range of phenomena that it manages to cover in a in a short space so it's uh, quite compelling in that way i found um and so perhaps the uh the first question would be, what is the here to which we have gotten? How would you, how would you characterize mm. that here? And I'm also curious if you felt that here changing sort of since you completed the book or um, if it, if it still feels like, and you know, it, you know, one of the themes of the book I'd say is a kind of cultural stagnation. So perhaps it still feels like the same here or perhaps it doesn't. So what is this here and are we still there or are we <laughs> slightly different here? <laughs> I, yeah, I think we're still in the here. Uh, the here I'm describing is uh, an absolute stagnation and inability to picture a future, much less to uh, construct it. Uh, I think the here is completely uh, sort of built on our inability to uh, think long term. And you're... Um... So one of the sort of um, vignettes or sort of mini chapters uh, points to... 9-11 seemingly as as one of the sort of the the points of origin of that here um so it is is here sort of the the 21st century and particularly the kind of post 9-11 21st century in part uh yeah i think that that's a good backdrop i think on top of that it encompasses a lot of the surveillance state we all live under i think we're all uh sort of complicit in spying on each other with a sort of decentralized power we all want to sort of rat each other out to Big Brother. Yeah. And you quote at the beginning from Nick Land's Meltdown, which is one of my favorite uh, texts. 
level one or world space is an anthropomorphically scaled, predominantly vision configured, massively multi-slotted reality system that is obsolescing very rapidly. Garbage time is running out. Can what is playing you make it to level two? Yes. And then also um, Jose Canseco, um, <laughs> as a sort of counterpoint to that, we live on a planet where the truth is dismissed and imprisoned on a consistent level. Truth, honesty, and honor is on the verge of extinction. Um, so have there been any glimpses of a level two that have stood out to you or is it? Uh, I think there's a certain segment. I think there's a certain segment of our population, the, uh, the kind of tech oligarchs that would tell you that we are entering into a level two. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting away from meat space, getting into these sort of digital realms with one another. And uh, I'm not buying it personally, but I, I think there's a certain segment that's saying it's out there. Yeah. And I mean, this, you know, a sort of larger theme that you're you're playing with and, and sort of um, body of literature that you're playing with here is accelerationism. Yeah. And I think one of the um, one of the things that a lot of people sort of stumble over with accelerationism is how, you know, if, if it's if it represents a positive project, how does that project differ from if at all, from the sort of already existing project of the sort of tech oligarchs <laughs> themselves? Yeah, or, or, or does it does it involve simply embracing that on some level? I think, I don't think it's a positive project. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's a matter of understanding your ability to affect change. And with the kind of hyper atomization and our absolute adherence to individuality, uh, we ourselves are pretty powerless in the face of accelerationism. Uh, so, you know, there's on one hand, you can enjoy the ride, but you also may want to try to pump the brakes whenever you are able to. Yeah. On a certain level. Right. And hence we have land referring to, you know, what is playing you. Um, so you are not the, the agent of this process. <laughs> right? um, I definitely have an interest in uh, simulation theory. That's what yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So I'd like to, um, so your, your first answer to this question of how, how do we get here is recycling <laughs> and, you know, you tell an interesting little story there, which we might go over, but um, at the same time, it seems like recycling is kind of the dominant motif of the book mm -hmm. that, that kind of everything comes back to it. So, um, I mean, what, what do we not understand about recycling, both in the literal sense of like, you know, what we, what we uh, sort and put in different cans, but also maybe in the kind of its relationship to like the larger cultural predicament? Well, on a literal level, uh, as I'm sure you're probably aware, we, uh, we ship a great number of recyclable goods to various third world countries. And in some cases they get burned, in some cases they get compacted down, in some cases they're even recycled. But recycling does not end with you putting X thing in Y bin or whatever. Uh, speaking to the cultural side of it, we are only recycling. That's it. Uh, we don't make uh, a new gadget. We make an iPhone with another camera. You know, cars all look like they did in 2010. Due to regulation, every, you know, Cadillac looks like a Accord, looks like a Hyundai, whatever. It's all we do is recycle culture. And politically as well, I would say. Right? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, in a previous episode when I talked to Biz Sherbert, um, you know, I... And then for the title coined this term Biden core, which is kind of my, my term for like the, the, our political moment, right. Sort sure. of 
replicates these these fashion trends where you take some you know like the thing i was thinking of there was this millennial core idea right where somehow oh, sure. um but where somehow like millennial fashion is already a sort of retro trend to the to the gen z um kids at least according to biz so so there you know there's this way that um there also there's an i mean going back to accelerationism there's a sort of acceleration of recycling right that oh certainly yes that, that nostal what you can be nostalgic for and turn into a sort of retro um, uh, pastiche has, has accelerated, right? The cycle by which you can, you can dip back into the past and turn something into a kind of motif of some prior moment. And then what's weird is that our politics are also that, right? That we have this kind of- um, Yeah, the kind of telescoping nature of it. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. Like we're, we're uh, nostalgic for only a president only once removed. So now we're getting Obama Mark II or whatever you want. Uh, and that is a function of nostalgia. Biden basically ran on, I'm going to make everything the same again. You know. yeah. uh, and speaking to fashion, I've always noticed that like truncation or telescoping of trends. Uh, you know, I was a teenager in the 1990s and that by the, I don't know, the middle of the aughts or whatever you want to call it, I was seeing those fashion tropes uh, aped, you know, pitch perfectly. And now you're right. That's happening in a, on a five-year cycle, not a 10, 15, 20-year cycle. So it, it, yeah. So there, right. There's um, the 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 there's an acceleration of recycling in a sense, right? The, <laughs> Absolutely. The speed yeah. at which things are getting are getting um, you know discarded, discarded, I, I, and then plugged back into the machine. Is, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. I think that's why I had to put that in the beginning of the book uh, just to set it as kind of like a light motif because it does come up again. Uh, a few times in, in, yeah. in various forms. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, so, you know, <laughs> there are a number of these, uh, these different sort of motifs, but, you know, one, another one that you, um, a, a, a sort of representative instance that, you know, kind of goes back to, again, you mentioned nine 11. I mean, this is where you bring up uh, the twin towers, right. Mm. Um, but is the, <clears throat> the sort of um, the cultural uh, phenomenon that in a way illustrates this and, and comes out of exactly that moment is the strokes, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So why are the strokes the sort of emblematic band of this period? Well, they're perfect for it. Uh, they are kind of a lab grown amalgam of any 1970s uh, power pop or like nascent like New York punk energy. I'm thinking like New York Dolls meets, uh, I think in the book I say uh, uh, the replacements and Tom Petty or something, or the Ramones replacements and Tom Petty. And you know, you put that stuff in a blender and you get the strokes perfect. Uh, All uh, referent rather than uh, illusion or even uh, any kind of distant knowledge of their forebears. They're, uh, you know, you put them in a blender and that's what you get. And I think that was indicative of an entire age. I was, you know, 1920 when this stuff came out and sort of a social adherent to it. I liked it a lot at the time and only with the, the slightest bit of cultural like distance from it do you see that it's, uh, it's, a, it's just in no way innovative. <laughs> not bad yeah. music, you know, that's not my point. Just uh, nothing new. Right. Yeah, I mean it's weird. So I, I mean we're probably about the same age. I um, 
when I was a kid, I, I mean, when I was a teenager, I was actually like, I went to a couple of the last, like some of the last uh, Ramones shows oh, sure. in New York. And, um, you know, it's, it, it felt like at that moment, you know, there were still a couple of the sort of old punk clubs in the East village. And I mean, I went to some of those and, you know, there was a sense that it was, it was sort of a dying um, subculture at that time. And, you know, the old East village was, being hyper gentrified and so on, but um, there there was still kind of the last moment of this this you know what had once been a relatively <clears throat> original and vibrant sort of cultural scene, mm-hmm. and um, it's weird you know th- <laughs> reading your take on the Strokes and this. Who I mean, their first album was was it around two thousand one two thousand? It was right before nine eleven. Okay, as a matter yeah. of fact, because mm-hmm. they they had to change the record cover, as I recall. Because or that take a, a track off because it was uh, it was called like New York City Cops, I think. And it was like anti-police. So, uh-huh. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Before 9-11. Very interesting. So, yeah, almost as if they were like stealing valor from the sort of <laughs> yeah, exactly. from the, like, early 90s hip hops, you know, fuck the police kind of <laughs> yes, stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Even that was a recycled, you know, tropic yeah. notion. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I, I think they were sort of privates, they were like Manhattan private school kids as well. Yeah, totally. I think uh, <laughs> one of them is Albert Hammond's kid. And I, you know, I think one's a Coppola. I could be wrong there, but you know, if they are, they are. If they're not, it's, it still stands. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, um, it, it, right. So they're, they're coming in right at that moment when, you know, again, it's like the thing that they were, it, it again speaks to, I think this, this kind of accelerated recycling because, you know, the things that they were recycling weren't really that much earlier than them, but, but there was a kind of, you know, there, there was a way you could, you had to see them as a kind of second order simulacrum of whatever it was they were recycling. Exactly. Yeah. Even though they weren't necessarily separated by that many years from it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The things that they were um, sort of uh, becoming like so adherent to in their references are probably only 10 years away from. Yeah. And, And now that happens much more quickly. I have no idea what's happening in, in pop music now, thankfully, but I couldn't keep up if I tried, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I sort of, I mean, this also just reminds me of that moment when the sort of, um, the cultural controversy, the sort of omnipresent cultural controversy was like the hipster, like the figure yes. of the hipster, right? Yes. And so that, it, you know, their um, heyday kind of coincides with that moment, which was very much tied up with this and you know you make that connection right um this sort of uh culture of like vintage recycling and clothing furniture decor etc everything being this kind of um trying to um collect these kind of stray signifiers of 20 different aspects of 20th century culture and kind of reconstitute them into this um pastiche of a sort of pseudo authenticity or something absolutely yeah it was it was like a search for authenticity and a search for um quintessence or something like everything had to be like the perfectly quintessential curated item and then with the advent of online shopping you see that uh sort of become a diaspora and and i think that's where that sort of mind virus hit the public so now like every average person has like a you know, the sparse mid-century home and you don't want to have any clutter and you don't want to, you know, have any tchotchkes that would represent your own personality because, you know, you have to have like the Eames lounger and you have to have the uh, whatever, the day bed or whatever it is, you know, the, the perfect uh, potted Monstera plant. <laughs> 
Yeah. We're all guilty. I'm not, I mean, me too. You know? Sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, no, it's so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I talked about this in that episode with biz as well, but, um, the, this whole, so this whole theme of like the hipster, I mean, to me, it seems like it's kind of died out because it just became, it just kind of became the aesthetic and the culture. So it, it ceased to be controversial because it just took over in a sense. Right. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, it's dominant. Yeah. And now there are all these companies that cater that, you know, it's like, it used to be maybe something you had to make an effort to collect, but now there are all these companies that cater specifically to that aesthetic you know, with, with new products and not even just like the bespoke sort of fancier furniture and things like that, but they're like cheap, you know, like target manufacturing. Sort of. Right. <laughs> well, and know, that vintage, visual aesthetic yeah. uh, has seeped into like weird levels. I would have never uh, thought like you have like the perfect, you know, curated Matisse packaging for like Rogaine now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Or like a male enhancement pill comes in like, I don't know, some sort of like chic little like tearaway package it's it's we've really reached a level that is is untenable and it if nothing else points to our addiction to aesthetics i think yeah and i mean the other interesting phenomenon that so that i don't know if you're you're familiar with the artist um and writer jenny odell oh uh, vaguely yeah she has that book um how to do nothing i think it's called yes, yes. um but but so she has this um she has this uh piece that was called uh, there's no such thing as a free watch, I think. Hmm. And basically it's, it's about this. She started noticing these like ads on Instagram for this, this watch that kind of looked like the, what's that company that makes them in Detroit? You know, that, that's sort oh, of. I, and they make bicycles or something company. as well. Yeah. 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 But it, so it had kind of the same as that, you know, kind of, okay. you know, kind of clean mid-century sure. aesthetic or whatever. And, but it was so, it was, um, it was like a special offer where it was free, right? And okay. you only had to pay the shipping, right? So so she started digging into this and basically she found that, so there, you know, there were a couple of companies doing this, right? They all had basically the same WordPress template website <laughs> and they all claimed to have storefronts in, you know, San Francisco, New York, Miami, whatever. But it turned out that none of these storefronts actually existed, Right. Like um, a drop the, shipper the pictures of them. Yeah, exactly. It's a drop shipper. So exactly. The pictures of them were just stock photo, right? The pictures of these supposed for storefronts were just stock photos. <laughs> and in fact, yeah, it's just a drop shipping company. <laughs> you know, these, these watches are made very cheaply. You know, the actual value of them is maybe like a dollar, right? And then right. you pay and then you, you know, they're free, but you pay like $10 shipping or something. Mm. And so then it's actually, they're actually just being, being churned out by like factory in Shenzhen, right? Of and um, and you know, and so you know, it's a it's a profitable little business. Wow. But but what's interesting about it is you have these, you know, you, what's what's amazing about it to me is you know, with this whole aesthetic, right? This whole kind of minimalist, mm -hmm. mid-century, whatever, um, sort of clean lines aesthetic. You know, you have these um, these Chinese entrepreneurs in Shenzhen who just like figure this out. Um, figure out how to set up these <laughs> these sort of dummy websites and Instagram ads that just you know cater to exactly that, and then you know uh, create this ridiculous thing where you're you know it's supposed to be free, but you're actually um, you know you're 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 actually still getting ripped off because the shipping is so much. I love but, it. It's, um, uh, but it's then easy. she shows that some <laughs> of the but then she shows. I mean, so that's fascinating in, in itself. But then she shows that like some of the more legitimate companies 
that are offering the same sort of products are pretty much using the same model, right? They're, they're not really doing anything that, that differently because their, their manufacturing is actually this. So what, you know, so again, you know, if you think about this sort of hipster aesthetic from 20 years ago, now it's just being sold back to us by the, you know, very clever <laughs> sort of Chinese drop shippers and, and, and Chinese yeah. drop shippers. I love it. And what's, what was really funny was like one of the, when she looked into it, she, like there was somebody who got one, you know, one of these watches in the mail and, um, it was just, uh, it, it like it actually had the on the label. It like stated what the actual value of it was. <laughs> like I guess they they forgot to remove it. So, oh, so it was like you know value ninety cents or something. <laughs> so, that's incredible. Yeah, but um, but yeah, so you know, and they were all called like I can't remember what the names. You know, they're they're all called things similar to like you know Folsom and Company or whatever. You know? Yeah, some you know hashtag that. authentic. Yeah. Uh, you know, mid century or rather exactly. turn of the century kind of aesthetic yeah. or whatever. Wow. So yeah, so I feel like that's you know to me that kind of reveals the next level of this, and it's why you know that there was like the, this idea that the hipster, you know, the hipster was this omnipresent figure, and you had these like bizarre article i remember this bizarre article in the new york times where it was like this guy you know some some writer like goes out to williamsburg and it's as if he's like doing some kind of you know anthropology of this like tribe or something. Yeah. <laughs> but then but then he goes and like gets his you know he goes to one of the barber shops and like gets his beard trimmed and <laughs> you know it's it's like um and and he goes and gets like kitted up with the whole you know, sort of vintage hipster outfit and so on. Sure. I mean, and so that was maybe 2005, 2006 or something sure. when that article yeah. came out, I think. And, you know, I mean, now Williamsburg is pretty much just luxury. It's, it's not, yeah. you know, it's it wh- whatever it was then. Now it's just like, that's where like you live if you work in finance or whatever. So, right. so it's, so, I mean, all of that has sort of been obsolesced. I mean, there's still kind of pockets of it but the, you know but the aesthetic isn't distinct anymore because it's just it's no just it's like i said it's reached a diaspora and it's it's reached a it's it's water level you know when you're yeah. selling packaging and you're selling the gloss of instagram over any product at all really uh i, I think it's it's really obvious how addicted to aesthetics we've all become yeah yeah yeah, and you do do sort of work in that area, right? Like uh, I do. Yes, <laughs> I am. I am completely guilty of this. Yeah. I make packaging and uh, a lot of apparel graphics and all kinds of uh, all kinds of things for uh, musicians and apparel companies, etc. So I'm yeah. I'm fully guilty of this. If there's a saving also... <laughs> if there's a saving grace, I'm just glad that I still make something with my hand in a in a sea of email jobs. Yeah, and you. You know, but it also gives you an insider view on this whole. It certainly <laughs> does. It certainly does. Uh, you know, being on sort of the ground floor of design, you get these design briefs and occasionally you'll see something that maybe was from like, just like last season or when it's really funny is you, your own artwork is in the brief and the person doesn't know that they've hired the person that does this previous artwork that they like. That's serendipitous and nice when that happens, but it's also really funny that like, you've done all this research to suss out this aesthetic and it, you actually found the person who made the original thing or whatever. It's very funny. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, the other aspect of it that that you get into is kind of this more, I think there's a way this, this attachment to sort of minimalist aesthetics connects to, and you, you pair um, two figures who I hadn't thought about before, but now it, 
you know, when I saw you do it, I was like, oh, that's so obvious. Um, is Marie Kondo and Jordan Peterson. Oh, I versions of clean your room. Yes. I looked high and low because I was positive. I'd read that somewhere. I, I must've spent a week just making sure I wasn't ripping off someone's idea, but I, I don't think anyone else has made it at least in print, but yes. it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you know, that somehow this, this sort of clean your room, um, you know, is, is a, a sort of moral or kind of moralizing, um, dimension of this attachment to minimalist aesthetics, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, when one, you know, the condoing of your, your place means getting rid of half of your things to be spiritually pure. And the other is to clean your room to make sure that you have some sort of I don't know, sense of pride or whatever he's on about, uh, both take on a moral component. And I think that's all built into the aesthetic. Like if you think of like, what was it? The uh, Shakers or Quakers, like built like the extreme, like, like highly like aesthetic, but like perfectly functional without uh, any superfluity uh, in there, in, in the way that they built all their furniture. That was a moral I- I- invective. You know, I don't see much difference between that and whatever you get at Crate and Barrel or whatever. Yeah. And this is sort of interesting in relation to, I mean, you know, you could also connect it back to like the Bauhaus and Mm -hmm. that whole aesthetic, which I mean, is interesting in that, you know, on one hand, I want to say what we're talking about is, you know, and I I did my episode uh, that just came out was on Jameson's postmodernism essay. Right. And we could definitely use that to talk about um, what the various things we're discussing, but at the same time, you know, one of the crucial features of postmodernism of classically defined as this rejection of the international style, right. in architecture and this, um, this embrace of this kind of loud, eclectic, um, you know, kind of vulgar um, mode of expression that, you know, in, um, in Robert Venturi's book is sort of associated with Las Vegas. Right. And that yes. sort of the, the, the rejection of, um, and, you know, I think there is a bit of a, you know, Emmett in the, in the Jameson episode, we talked about on one hand, this, you know, J- um, Jameson talks a lot about this aesthetic of flatness, right. Which we sort of associated with the screen. Right. Yes. Um, but at the same time, there's kind of this embrace of this, this kind of, vul- you know, the vulgar excesses of Las Vegas, right? As something that you can, you can reject the international style and, and then um, yeah, that, that kind of enables this return to that. So, you know, so there is this kind of acceptance of, of a certain like catachresis and vulgarity that can be embraced back into the aesthetic. But it seems like what we're talking about is actually this, um, this, uh, flipping back into a kind of, I mean, again, you know, Danish modernism is sort of a, a sort of smoothed over international style in a way, right? Oh, it's, no doubt. It's, um, it's, it's part of that moment. Um, it, it doesn't have the kind of austerity and, and sort of harshness of the, um, the Bauhaus in its original form, but, but there is a, you know, it's, it's, it's part of that moment. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious, if, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this way that we're, on one hand, we're still clearly kind of operating under the sign of the, the type of postmodernity that people like Jameson were discussing, but there is this kind of reversion to that, you know, pre-venturi sort of um, minimalist sensibility. One thing I think about immediately when you bring up this point is the 
hyper flattening of corporate logos that were once mm -hmm. either cartoony or shaded to look like they were three-dimensional or in some cases like the Bob's Big Boy or the, the KFC bucket, literally three-dimensional. And we've all pushed these down, not only into flattened screen aesthetic, but beyond that, a kind of hyper flatness where now there may be only one color or any kind of serif or something that was on a, a bit of text has been etched away and, and rubbed clean. So there's like simultaneously the, the, the Las Vegasification, if you want to call it that, and the, the sort of ability to build any building next to another or have a kind of a an unintentional postmodern cacophony, which makes me think of something like mashup culture or like DJ culture, like that's a kind of a sonic equivalent to that. But at the same time, at the highest echelons, every logo is just flat, sans serif, super closely kerned, unless it's June and then they're a rainbow. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, right, we're in rainbow season. Now. We're in rainbow yeah. season, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That um, that sort of um, yeah, the the sans serif font sort of being um, again, I, I I would associate it with that. You know, in an earlier time, it it, it seemed very specific to like the hipster bar or something like that. But yes, it's, it's amazing how rapidly the standard. Yeah, it's it it goes all the way to the top. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can imagine them like, you know, redesigning the like seal of the president of the United States. Right. <laughs> oh, there would be no eagle. There would be uh, no representation of any kind of organic material would yeah. no longer be. Well, I mean, th they almost did this. Remember the CIA little faux <laughs> kind of rebrand they did online with that guy Ryder Rips or whatever. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, there's so, precedent for this. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you could imagine just getting rid of everything and it'd just be like POTUS and font or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, done. You just made a whole lot of money. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think um, another thing that you talk about, which, I mean, a, a, another section of this that I found particularly interesting was discussion of the art market. And mm. I thought of it sort of associatively because the the example you, get, or the, the sort of imaginary artwork you... <laughs> you gave is just this um this sort of canvas with like a stenciled president bad on it mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah so that was kind of my um what, what brought me back to thinking about that section was my imaginary minimalist uh presidential <laughs> seal but right so president bad just kind of stenciled on a on a canvas um so you know but that's just your example of the the sort of um the contemporary artwork right um the, yeah it the standard contemporary artwork. So, I mean, you have some really interesting stuff to say just about the functioning of the art market um, in there. And I really enjoyed that section, but um, I don't know, maybe could you try to recap that? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, it's actually how the book started. I spent about the last 20 years stubbornly trying to have a, a fine art career that was never going to pop. And uh, the thing that I, really realized that pulled me out of that kind of stupor was the fact that I was showing in uh, low to mid-tier galleries and always in group shows and always with some sort of an NGO donation bent. And I found that I was actually just becoming a functionary for the left side of capital. I was a, you know, I, I said this on other podcasts or whatever, I became a pay pig, you know, I, uh, 
It's not something I'm interested in. And so I've decoupled like intentionally. Don't get me wrong. It's not like these people are beating down my door asking me to come back, but uh, I don't think I'll be doing that again. So in that, I started writing this uh, entry, which ended up being the first thing I wrote. Uh, and the idea is that if a work of art is created, it must kind of reach three criteria. The person who makes it has to uh, exhibit a certain amount of struggle in order for it to reach a, a certain audience in this day and age. Uh, it has to clearly get its point across. And the point in this case is president bad. That's what it says on the painting in a sort of a faux Christopher Wool kind of style. And uh, uh, thirdly, it has to reach a consensus in order for it to, a consensus by moneyed individuals in order for it to uh, enter into a large enough marketplace. Uh, I just treat it like any other commodity. I, you know, read up on commodity trading and stuff and uh, just basically stole a bunch of lingo because I don't know anything about that. And uh, there we are. Yeah. And, you know, you point out also this, um, this phenomenon of the, uh, the free ports. Yes. Yeah. This is something I learned about several years ago um, where extreme wealth uh, means that you, A, might not want everyone knowing what assets you have. And B, you certainly don't want to pay taxes. And so Freeport is a physical place where you can, it's a warehouse where you can store things sort of uh, while on paper remaining perpetually in transit, which means you're not going to get taxed for them in America because they don't exist in America. You're not going to get taxed for them in Brazil because they don't exist in Brazil. They're always in transit on paper. Uh, I think it speculated a lot of, uh, you know, some of the great wonders are in free ports. I think in the comic, I have a UFO in the background of one of them. You know, this is, uh, this is where the, 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 the real shady finance deals go down that we're just not ever going to be privy to. Yeah. And I mean, just this, um, this strange way that, um, you know, contemporary art is, you know, it's all the, you know, the, the sort of late flowering of the 20th century avant-garde, right? And, and yet what it primarily functions as is this, this bizarre sort of commodity, right? The, I think it's only a commodity. Sort of, I mean, inflate and you know, inflated commodity that whose whose entire function is to accrue value. Um, it. I mean, and you know, if if you think back to like you know Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, yes. right? It's sort of this um this strange phenomenon where you know there he distinguishes between um between um cult value and exhibition value yes exactly um whereas here what we have is is almost something that <laughs> that go, you know that we have a different kind of value that's emerged right which which you know the value that's accruing is is neither um is neither attached to some kind of cultic aura nor is it dependent on being exhibited right because they might just stuck in one of these free ports um at least at the end of the line, they're in the Freeport. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the value is, is crazy because, you know, we were talking about this sort of false authenticity earlier. And I think that plays in like when you see uh, victimhood or if, when you see a, uh, a sort of a certain amount of oppression as a value marker, that is a kind of a cultic value, isn't it? I'm not saying that's what makes yeah. art. I'm just saying that we live in a moment where that is a, uh, a, a sort of specific marker of a kind of value. Right. I mean, so what's interesting to me is that, you know, for, I mean, the other thing you can get out of that text is this idea of the, um, you know, it's either the, you know, it, he argues you either have the politicization of aesthetics or the aestheticization of politics. Of politics. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, the politic, I mean, what's, 
partly ironic here is what he presents as the radical sort of path is the politicization of aesthetics, right? Now, what, what it seems like we have with a lot of these types of works you're discussing is this kind of performance of politics, right? Where, um, where the, the artwork is supposed to, you know, if we think back to these kind of great moments of scandal, right, related to avant-garde art, right? It's like everything is kind of, the, the authenticity is often uh, tied to some kind of performance of that moment of scandal, but, yes. but it, none of it is actually scandalous, right? It's, it's. Um, right. Rarely in, in these like rarefied circles of art is anything life or death. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, thinking back to the nineties, right. I remember when there were still these, like, you know, I remember there was like uh, this exhibit where Giuliani was like leading a protest because there was, I can't remember if it was the piss Christ or the, um, I think, yeah, the, this sort of cow dung, the, um, the like cow dung, um, oh, the Virgin Mary or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it was, there, there was still that moment where you had certain, I mean, particularly because you had the religious right or, um, you know, Catholic groups that would object to certain artworks that would like profane, you know, some uh, Christian symbol, right? And that was honestly the last time I remember there being a sort of actual scandal around an art exhibit of some sort, right? But it, but it was a scandal, not on the part of the kind of general bourgeois public, right, where... You know, and at the time when Benjamin is writing, there's still this kind of, you know, the, the, the purpose of, of these sort of avant-garde artworks is to like épater le bourgeois, right? This kind of, uh, this kind of mission of like scandalizing the generalized um, middle-class public, right? Right. Art is meant sort of, to shock, right? Right. Whereas yeah. instead what, the, you know, the last moment when I remember that happening was kind of this, um, this moment where you had this, you know, now largely, I mean, not not entirely powerless, but sort of culturally powerless um, faction, right? Of sort of the, of like religious conservatives who would still protest these, but you know, that it, it seems like that's, um, and, and there was a way that, you know, the sort of Saatchi like bad boy artist um, uh, kind of allure was, and, and that, you know, that was a kind of authenticity that was, that was created by scandal, right? The, the sort of Saatchi, um, you know, set of artists, you know, they're, their authenticity came partly out of their ability to antagonize these sort of reactionary groups. We, but it doesn't I, seem like there's anything like that today. There is. It's just on such a small scale and it's only in the art press and it doesn't break out to larger institutions predominantly. Uh, I think the scandal that, well, let, let me re- let me frame. I think the people who are scandalized are just a different group of people at this point. Uh, I don't see much... Uh, antagonism coming from the religious right. I think the people who are more apt to uh, be shocked and awed by work are, are sort of the bourgeois on the left. Yeah, sure. Uh, right. So it so, still happens. It's just a different group of scandalized, right? Right. So, you know, instead what you have is the kind of cancel. You have, yeah. you have this, um, I mean, I, 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 I think of the, uh, you know, that who's uh, Catherine Schutz, is that her name? The who did the um, the Emmett Till oh, painting? Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, and you know, what was odd to me about that instance was like the painting itself was sort of you know, it, it felt very kind of 20th century expressionist or something to me in its aesthetics. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's a good characterization. Of I think it, it's, but, it's probably fair, yeah. But it was weird because you know, she was trying to make a political statement about. I mean, so it, it ties into our whole theme in a sense, because she was like recycling a, a political horror of the 20th century 
and also kind of recycling an aesthetic, right? Of this, yes. This kind of thick, you know, thickly laid on canvas, <laughs> um, which, you know, which all seems very retro to me in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, what's interesting is then she was accused of appropriation. And I'd say it was a kind of appropriation, right? I, I think, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I, my criticism of the painting is not that of the people who were protesting it exactly, but they were right that she was engaged in a kind of appropriation, which I think fit into the, the larger kind of culture of recycling and discussing. I think she would probably cop to that. But also yeah. the, the reason these people are scandalized, at least in part, is because of that sort of like cultic value we're talking about uh, tied to authenticity. She yeah. does not meet that marker in this case. So of course it's going to only enter the public sphere through scandal. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had the, I mean, the um, Philip Gustin, I guess was the other mm -hmm. one, but, but it's interesting how the, the, the works that are scandalizing are often not, it's not because they're like too new or too cutting edge, right? I mean, I guess well, maybe specifically that's the... in, in the case of Gustin, it's it's very old. But it on the on the curator, I can't remember if it was curator or the museum director's part. They said that uh, the, the public was not ready to have that conversation. Right. So how does that work temporally? Because these works were made so long ago that ostensibly several discussions have been happening for many years. Why now are we too simple, or why now can we not end? Very interesting. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, yeah, there's some way that it's almost like, um, I mean, it, I, I suppose another way to put it is there's a certain kind of shock that comes out of works from the 20th century that might be, I mean, from one perspective, too advanced or too extreme for our sort of more, you know, our, our sort of neater and more smoothed over aesthetic and moral mm -hmm. culture, right? And Victorian morals. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. So, I mean, and I, I feel like this, um, you know, I, I want to say this kind of ties into the whole, the problem of messiness, right? Why messiness has become bad. Um, oh, it's that's, become that's sinful. True. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. so messiness is bad on the aesthetic level. It's bad on the, um, on the moral level. Um, ambiguity is bad. <laughs> so, oh, ambiguity um, is is the messiness of the mind, right? It's right. all a, a piece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and tying back to what we were talking about before, like you know, it does strike me that you know, the, for me, the bohemian aesthetic that I was familiar with growing up, and that was even kind of my own, like my parents' household, was extremely messy, right? It was extremely cluttered. It was very. Um, eclectic and yes. i mean this is you know my dad's house is still like this total mess. <laughs> it's a disaster my but, mom but has I mean, very little open wall space I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about yeah but <laughs> but i mean this was kind of the the more bohemian kind of um you know it it, it had a certain um richness you know and 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 it was lived in and you could feel to. it and yeah, yeah. i I, Whereas, uh, I long for that frankly yeah and so what we're living in now is this kind of anesthetized reality, right? Um, and so, you know, we can see that on the level of the, I mean, and, and this I would say is also part of why the COVID lifestyle was so appealing to so many people, right? Because oh, absolutely. Of, There's no ambiguity. Everyone is, uh, you know, your literal breath is contained on your person. Uh, you know, you're not going to exchange any nascent droplets. Everyone, you know, keeps to themselves and keeps six feet apart and, that's Lego life, you know, that it doesn't get cleaner than that. <laughs> yeah. And so, but we were already prepared for it by this kind of 
anesthetization of of our aesthetic and moral. Absolutely correct. Um, And so, I mean, yeah, so part of what's weird about this is that the, I mean, and and I also want to suggest there's, there's sort of a class dimension to this, right? That, you know, I mean, think about how, I mean, it go tying back to recycling, right? So whether you do recycling and care about it is like a, clearly a class marker, right? Absolutely. And similarly, um, you know, whereas once I feel like, um, you know, having a sort of, having a sort of cluttered kind of aesthetically eclectic environment in which you lived might've been a marker of a certain, um, you know, a, a certain countercultural quality, right? Yeah. Or worldliness um, or, you know. Yeah. You know, now it's, a, I think, essentially associated with, you know, and if you watch like the Marie Kondo show, right, it's like, you know, I, I think part, there is a kind of porn aspect to it where it's like the people who watch it are, are kind of titillated by the sight of these, you know, sort of lower middle class people who just have these incredibly cluttered houses, right? Um, and they're sort yeah, of I titillated mean, by it, but it's also horrifying. And so yes. there's a satisfaction in seeing that cleaned up, right? That, sh- that show was, uh, it came on, it was released after the, the other show uh, that, that I, I can't help but uh, so, sort of tied it to it, which was Hoarders. And Hoarders right, was right. pure horror, whereby mm-hmm. the viewer was titillated, exhausted, disgusted, and then the show was over. But this was more like an A24 horror, you know, the Marie Kondo, whereby like at the end, everything was wrapped up in a nice bow or through some kind of like uh, overarching system of morals, there was a happy end. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, um, it's you know, this, so again, I think this kind of class, I mean, so I, you know, another thing I've thought about a lot recently is, um, you know, another thing that's shocking to me, like in New York about COVID, about the sort of COVID overhaul is that, you know, there there was kind of this idea that like part of what you appreciate about being a New Yorker and living in New York is like that you're kind of good with the messiness. Like you, you kind of like the, the like smell of garbage in the summer and, you know, the like hot, sweaty subway tunnels. And like there, there's a kind of yeah. like allure to that. You know? Sure. Cheek by jowl. Um, and, you know, and that you had this whole industry for, you know, again, going along with this, like, kind of um, this, uh, you know, whole kind of retro craze that we've been discussing, you know, that that was kind of all about fetishizing. And I mean, you know, it did produce some interesting literature and film, I'd say, but, you know, about like the New York in the 70s, right? Um, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, um, Rachel Kushner's uh, The Flamethrowers, right, which, which I like as a book, um, but, you know, and it's probably one of the better ones that that, you know, is trying to capture that moment and definitely, you know, the big blackout and, but, you know, there's a whole industry, right? There were movies, there were, I mean, just like trying to recapture that, that, you know, when New York was like genuinely gritty and kind of interestingly dangerous and all of that. Right. Um, and so, so what's fascinating to me is like, you know, I, I live, you know, there are all these people around who I know have like have spent years like waxing nostalgic for that time and so sure. on. Right. But now um, they all think all these same people think that like, you know, if you even after you're vaccinated, don't wear a mask, then you're like murdering people or something <laughs> or like or that you have to like keep wearing the mask because it makes people <laughs> feel safe. Right. Yeah. It's so, a security so, theater. <laughs> right. So. So it's like, and the, the amazing thing about it is, I mean, and I brought this up as well. There was like this N plus one article that was called, you know, from like 10 years ago called like raise the crime rate. Right. And the, the point of it seemed to be that 
well, if, you know, the only way to like de-gentrify New York and get rid of all the luxury blight and so on is to just like let people out of Rikers and, you know, <laughs> let things get a little dangerous again, you know, and then the cool people who can deal with that will ride it out. But like the, the nasty suburbanites who have, you know, been um, buying up condos in these luxury buildings and Williamsburg won't be able to tolerate it. Right. So, okay, fine. Well, you know, I think that does express a sensibility that a lot of people have. Right. Yeah, the, then the, COVID the, the jokerification of New York. Right. But then, but I mean, what shows me that was also unserious is like, then COVID happens, the rents do actually go way down. Yes. Right? A lot of the, the sort of whatever suburban minded people do move to the suburbs. Um, so all of this stuff happens, right? And, um, you know, instead of, I mean, it, you know, you don't have a, a, a large culture of these kind of bohemian artist writer types who are like, yeah, it's kind of fun to like go around and, you know, take the, enjoy the the dangerous side of New York living uh, by, you know, not wearing a mask. <laughs> and like, um, I mean, you did have, I, I will say you had a little bit of that, right? There was this like controversial, there's this writer, um, Caitlin Phillips. Sure, yeah. Who like, uh, there was some kind of thing where, it turned out she and like some of her whatever cool friends were like having dinner parties with, with you know, like in the in the really bad COVID period. Right. I remember reading and about it, this and being embarrassed that it was even a story. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but but then, the you know, I'd say the majority of the kind of media literary type people were like totally horrified by them. Thought of course. It was, like yeah. thought it was awful. And so I don't know. I, I'd say just this, um, you know, it, there, there's something interesting about you know, this anesthetization of everything, but then it, it creates this kind of aesthetic demand for representations of this like unanesthetized sort of grittier, dirtier, um, more dangerous world. But then, yeah. but then that, that you, you only want that on the kind of level of the simulacrum, right? You don't Absolutely. actually want it. You don't actually want it. You don't actually want the real version of that. <laughs> no, that would be messy. You could smell it, you know, and that's that's terrible. Uh, it's it's so funny that you bring up uh, sort of 70s gritty in New York and the, the sort of waves of movies that sort of like aped that. I just watched uh, Abel Ferrara's The Driller Killer last night. Have you seen this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible, like so yeah. visceral, so disgusting. But the thing I found the most unnerving about watching it wasn't him inserting a cordless drill into homeless men's heads or bodies or whatever. It was close-up shots of him eating pizza like an animal or like chugging milk or like eating a, a cold Big Mac out of the fridge, like absolutely vile. And that kind of messiness is more quotidian and more real. And in our like current milieu, that becomes the horror, at least for me, you know, I'm sure it does for, for most people. Um, it was just shocking. And I had to laugh out loud that that was the part that freaked me out seeing a guy eat a burger. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean that, yeah. I mean, Ferrara is definitely one person worth, <laughs> worth revisiting. No doubt. Um, for, for that, for, you know, thinking about that moment. I mean, obviously sort of the culmination of this entire, you know, sequence was the, the joke, you know, you mentioned the jokeification, yeah. like yeah, yeah. was, was Joker, right. Which, was a fascinating moment because it happened, you know, the, the, I mean, Joker and the moral panic around it happened right before it. Yes. So, it seemed to spark it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it, it's almost like that, um, that film, um, you know, is, is sort of the perfect representation of, of this whole kind of weird 
nostalgia culture, right? And that that I, I'd say also it's like amorphous politics, right? Where it, it mm. can kind of be read any anyway. Like yeah. I know people from all over the spectrum that read it a million different ways. Yeah, but I think in a way that's also <laughs> a good illustration of the the dead ends that all of those politics are, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Because they're all a kind of expression of this, um, you know, I, I'd say in a way they're, they're all, um, or what it shows is the way that, the, I mean, going back to the kind of Benjaminian, you know, politics and aesthetics, right? The, the way that the politics is all subjugated to this kind of aesthetic regime. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the taxi driver, driller, killer, the sort of dirty New York sheen that, you know, signals to you that this is a messy world. Right, right, right. But that, you know, somehow the, um, you know, the, the fantasies of, of breaking out of this, this here that we've been discussing are, are themselves entirely dictated by the kind of, you know, aesthetic parameters that it's generated. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I have this, the little uh, vignette, uh, endless film remakes. And I literally yeah. talk about how many instantiations of the Joker there have been and how it traps you in a loop and you are stuck inside of that sort of aesthetic until you can't think outside of it. Yeah, and so, you know, and, and this is part of why I think like all of these um, these sort of political tendencies, whether on the left or right, that were supposed to be pushing us beyond whatever this uh, moment of stagnation is, you know, we're really, um, you know, I would say in various ways, like, <clears throat> discredited completely over the past year. Um, and, oh, yeah. and, and I think, <laughs> you know, we can take the final Joker and it's kind of amorphous quality, an illustration of why, because, because in a sense, those, those politics were downstream from, you know, and I'm not, I'm not really an adherent of the, the politics is downstream from culture <laughs> the man in life. mantra in general, but I do think it's true today. Right. I, think, I certainly I think, think it's true. I think in a, in a limited sense, like it is absolutely true that all of the politics are seeing is downstream from the products of this um, sort of culture industry that we've been discussing. I think, I think a really good example is I don't honestly hear about too much policy being made under this administration. What I see is Joe Biden eating ice cream, AOC performatively crying on television or TikTok or whatever it is. It is, it is, uh, an adherence to the simulacra to the the spectacle rather than substance and it's uh yeah we're we're trapped in a loop there so i think you know we've sort of come full circle in in this uh <laughs> you know recycling uh, <laughs> process that we're unfortunately you know doomed to repeat um any final uh, thoughts or plugs as we wrap things <clears throat> up uh, well, I have uh, a short comic coming out uh, under the Aeonic Comics banner. Excellent. Mm -hmm. um, Ooh, another uh, another friend of the show, Chris Gabriel of Chris Gabriel. Analysis, right? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. A short coming out. Uh, I don't know when this will air, but uh, either it'll be out by the time this is out or just a few weeks after. And uh, I have a long form nonfiction-ish graphic novel that I'm working on that centers around uh, a very specific pop culture figure of the last 20 years and some intelligence ties that they have. Excellent. But we'll, that's uh, we'll leave the, uh, the reveal of who that is for when it comes out. Yeah. Mom's the word for now. 
All right, cool. Well, something to look out for, and uh, I'll leave my listeners to speculate in the meantime. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a great, uh, great conversation. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Thanks for having me. If I could just uh, plug one last thing, absolutely. Uh, yeah, your listeners, your listeners can get. Uh, how did we get here at firsttoknock.com? Yeah, and I will uh, put the link in the show notes as well. Love so. it. Yeah, definitely check it out. It's, uh, you know, if you're interested in what we've been talking about, it's got a lot of food for thought and a lot of, a lot of great images. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't exhaust all of the little vignettes and, you know, aspects of our strange cultural scene that it covers. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, there's more to more to read about in there. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Sterling. Thanks. Avoid the void. Yes. <laughs> Avoid the void. <laughs>